Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of The Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, we're talking about competency, which is a requirement for an individual to undergo the criminal process. Individuals have to have sufficient mental or physical capacity to engage in a legally significant act. Most often, this comes up when there's a question of a defendant's competency to stand trial or their ability to function in a meaningful fashion in a legal proceeding. Competency assessments are sometimes conducted to determine whether a defendant has the ability to understand the legal proceedings, communicate with an attorney, understand their role in the proceedings, and make legally relevant decisions. Most of the time, competency is raised in pretrial hearings, but it can be raised at any point. Competency is necessary to make sure defendants can get a fair trial. It's not morally acceptable to punish a person if they don't understand the reason why they're being punished. Those who are not competent enough to defend themselves, in the United States at least, would have their Fifth and Sixth Amendments violated by being subjected to the criminal process. Competency evaluations are done for between 2 and 8% of all felony defendants. The focus is generally on whether there is psychosis. There's a strong correlation between diagnosis of psychosis and findings of incompetence. Research in this area, though, suggests the presence of psychosis isn't sufficient by itself for a finding of incompetency. There are situations when someone who is mentally ill has been found by some courts to meet the competency requirements despite their mental illness. Mental illness can exacerbate other aspects that contribute to someone being found incompetent. Unfortunately, the decisions around whether someone is competent to stand trial can vary quite a bit depending on who's making the decision. The evaluation only goes so far. Ultimately, the judge makes the final decision. One case that highlights the complexity of competency is that of Brendan Dassey, the cousin of Stephen Avery from Making a Murderer. I mentioned him in the last episode, and I want to dive deeper into his psychological evaluation and the outcomes of that. There was a request for a psychological evaluation in 2006. Brendan was evaluated by psychologists from the Forensic Psych Associates. At the time of this evaluation, Brendan was 17. The report contains multiple assessments that gauge multiple different psychological factors related to his case. The report was requested specifically to assess the psychological characteristics that could put someone at risk for making a false confession. Many of these factors can also contribute to a person's competency to stand trial. The psychologists collect a thorough history from Brendan before initiating testing. Intelligence is a big factor in competency as well as false confessions. The report mentions that Brendan was slow to respond because of his personality characteristics and somewhat limited intellectual functioning. He scored within the low average range of the Weschler abbreviated scale of intelligence IQ test with a score of 83. Other intelligence tests fell within the borderline range of intelligence, meaning most people his age would have intellectually performed better than Brendan did on that test. In terms of psychological tests, they administered the MMPIA. Brendan had a significantly elevated score showing a profile similar to people who go to great lengths to avoid social interaction. 
The 16PF was also administered to assess suggestibility where Brendan scored on the opposite end of the continuum from independence, which is consistent with people who are more suggestible. People with that score are deferential, submissive, and humble, as opposed to dominant, assertive, and competitive. He also scored consistently with someone who is shy and socially timid. For the state trait anger expression inventory, Brandon scored similar to people who have a hard time making decisions due to difficulty understanding their own feelings. They rarely become angry when treated poorly, and Brendan's particularly low score indicated he may over-control his anger. They also assessed Brendan using the Gajonson Suggestibility Scales, which measures aspects of interrogative suggestibility. The yield scale refers to whether a person yields to leading questions, and the shift scale refers to how willing the person is to shift their answers following negative feedback or pressure. Brendan's scores were significantly elevated for both yield and shift scores, indicating that he is significantly suggestible when subject to situations analogous to a police interrogation. The overall assessment concluded that Brendan was intellectually limited, anxious, avoidant, and reserved. The psychologists believed he would be very susceptible to suggestibility if presented with leading questions during an interview or presented with interrogative pressure. That assessment pretty clearly casts major doubt on his confession as well as his overall competency. The APA and expert in false confessions Saul Kassin believes this as well. To the extent that Dr. Kassan wrote a brief to the Supreme Court over Brendan's case in 2018. I want to read in its entirety this short brief Dr. Kassan wrote to the Supreme Court on behalf of Brendan Dassey, asking them to consider reviewing the case. He covers the question of coercive techniques used by the police, Brendan's mental capacity, and its effect on his suggestibility. The title of this brief is Why SCOTUS Should Examine the Case of Making a Murderer's Brendan Dassey by Saul Kassin. Any day now, the U.S. Supreme Court will consider whether to weigh in on the case of Brendan Dassey, convicted co-star of the 2015 Netflix documentary Making a Murderer. The court should review the case because it raises many troubling issues about coercive techniques used on a vulnerable teenager, a population the court has protected in the past. This is Brendan's last chance. A federal judge overturned Dassey's conviction in 2016, ruling that his confession was coerced. A three-judge panel later affirmed that ruling. This past December, however, by a 4-3 to three vote, the Seventh Circuit reinstated his conviction. If the Supreme Court chooses not to hear the case, Brendan will remain incarcerated until at least 2048. For what it means for juvenile justice, police interrogations, and false confessions. This case is troubling. The underlying psychology is highly relevant. That's why the American Psychological Association submitted an amicus brief urging the court to review it. As inconceivable as it seems, people under pressure confess to crimes they did not commit. The Innocence Project reports that false confessions contributed to more than 25% of its 356 DNA exonerations. Innocent people don't send themselves to prison in a random act of self-destruction. So why does it happen? Some individuals are inherently vulnerable, 
certain police interrogation tactics are coercive. Combine the two sets of risk factors and false confession is often the result. This brings us to Dassey of Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. On March 1st, 2006, Dassey, then 16, sat for hours in an interrogation room. Prosecuting a murder case against his uncle, Stephen Avery, two detectives wanted Dassey to implicate Avery in the murder of Teresa Halbach. Eventually, he succumbed, implicating both Avery and himself. The Seventh Circuit evaluated Dassey's confession by considering the totality of circumstances under which it was taken. In reinstating Dassey's conviction, however, the court's totality analysis was flawed. While conceding the existence of specific risk factors, it failed to account for how these factors interact. One issue concerns Dassey's susceptibility. Over the years, the Supreme Court has cautioned that juveniles should be treated with special care. Youth are vulnerable, which is why juveniles are statistically overrepresented in false confession cases. They are more easily manipulated than adults, more compliant, and more myopically focused on the present. Citing developmental neuroscience, the National Institute of Mental Health has described the teenage brain as a work in progress. Dassey also has below average intelligence with a tested IQ of 73, making him even more vulnerable. In the film, he described himself as stupid. Quote, they got into my head, he confided to his mother. Research shows that people who are intellectually limited do not fully grasp their Miranda rights or the grave consequences of confession. They are also highly suggestible to leading questions. A second set of issues concerns the processes of interrogation used on Dassey. Rather than compensate for the boy's limitations, police use the kinds of trickery and deceit that can produce false confessions from fully functioning adults. Detectives said they knew what happened and had proof, which was untrue. When the boy protested his innocence, they pressed on and threatened to charge him. Research shows that misrepresenting evidence can disorient people. It can alter people's perceptions, beliefs, memories, and even certain medical outcomes, as in the classic placebo effect. Yet, U.S. courts permit police to lie to suspects about DNA, fingerprints, or a failed polygraph. This tactic is rampant in adult false confessions. In the laboratory, it leads innocent college students to apologize for breaking a computer, cheating, or stealing money. Detectives also offered Dassey a lifeline and sought Dassey's trust by pretending to care for him as they would their own sons. Quote, I'm a father that has a young kid your age, one detective said. Quote, I promise I will not leave you high and dry. That subterfuge set the stage for police to introduce calming minimization tactics. Feigning sympathy, they suggested that Avery, not Dassey, was to blame. U.S. courts normally reject confessions induced by explicit promises of leniency. They recognize that an innocent person feeling trapped and told he has nothing to lose might be tempted to confess to something he didn't do. To be sure, Dassey's investigators made no specific promises, but leniency was strongly implied. Quote, it's not your fault. Remember that, they said. Quote, you've done nothing wrong. Research shows that when a friendly interrogator assures a suspect in this way, people infer leniency, as if a promise has been made. 
This might explain a head-scratching juxtaposition in which Dassey both admitted to murder and asked if he would get back to school in time for a project. The Seventh Circuit cited three arguments in support of Dassey's confession. First, it noted that Dassey was not subject to physical force or mental exhaustion. He wasn't handcuffed, yelled at, or beaten into submission. This is true, but setting the bar this low represents an incomprehensible step backward. Even the Miranda court over 52 years ago understood that a subtle psychological approach can be inherently coercive. The second argument was that Dassey waived Miranda, that he, quote, nodded in agreement, and this constituted prima facie proof that his ensuing statement was voluntary. This is only half right. Dassey may have nodded, but that gesture more likely conveyed the acquiescence to authority of a low IQ teen, not agreement to waive his constitutional rights. Research shows that individuals who did nothing wrong don't think they need the protection. The third argument was that Dassey's confession showed that he had corroborating knowledge about the crime. Not so fast. Dassey's final narrative was riddled with inconsistencies and factual errors. Moreover, the detectives had fed him information through a series of hints and leading questions. As in many proven false confessions, he merely parroted a statement authored by investigators. On this point, too, it is worth noting that fully 95% of proven false confessions contain accurate and often vivid facts about the crime that were not in the public domain, facts communicated to innocent suspects through the process of interrogation. Over the years, the U.S. Supreme Court has sought to protect children, recognizing that they require special care, the treatment of Brendan Dassey, using interrogation tactics built for adults and troubling in their own right, controverts this position and should be re-examined. Brendan just being the age he was at the time of the crime already falls into a category of lower competency. In research evaluating the competence to proceed or the ability to understand the purpose and nature of the trial process, the capacity to provide relative information to counsel and process that information, and the ability to apply information to one's own situation that's not irrational, Younger individuals were nearly three times as likely than youth older than 15 to be significantly impaired in reasoning and understanding. That reflects two incredibly important components of legal competence. Add to that Brendan's limited intellectual ability, and I'm shocked anyone was convinced that he was competent to proceed. That doesn't even factor in the numerous psychological risk factors reported in his assessment. Brendan is overcompliant. He wants to please others and not get in trouble. What some rationalized as competence is easily exposed by his psychological assessment as incompetent. Unfortunately, even the words of Dr. Kasson didn't sway the Supreme Court, who turned down the plea to intervene in the case. Additionally, in December of 2019, the governor of Wisconsin denied a request to grant clemency to Brendan. Despite these setbacks, his lawyers, Laura Ryder and Stephen Drizzen, continue to fight for the freedom of their client. Thank you for listening to episode 13. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Hit that subscribe button so you have access to the newest episodes right when they come out. You can listen to The Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. 
please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find us. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. And all excerpts that were read in full are included in the episode notes. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.